be to God for that word, and for you, John Michael, and for Lily Marie, your sharing, and for all of you for being here today. I'm Hannah. I'm the pastor here at Wicker Park. We are a church that exists in four places at once, and this is one of them. And I'm so, so glad that each and every one of you is here. However God brought you here, I am grateful for it. And I ask that you would pray with me. God of grace, God of mercy, God who loves us and made us with intention, we ask that you would be with us in this moment and in all moments, that we would know our own wholeness and belovedness and value before you, that we would know that no one else, no matter what they do, can ever destroy our integrity or our belovedness before you. God, we ask that you would be with us today in our words and in our hearts and in our actions, that you would guide them evermore towards you and your kingdom and the salvation that we have been promised. And in those moments when we are drawn away, that we would have the courage to repent, to apologize, to find our way towards a new way of living so that we might offer healing and not harm to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This month we're in a sermon series on what the Bible doesn't tell us. Things that people say the Bible says, but are maybe a little bit off, or not quite there, or not quite helping us to truly know the God who loves us so. And today was supposed to be um, a sermon, a meditation, a worship on the idea that God will never give you anything more than you can handle. And just in case you were really excited about that and you really needed it because someone has said that to you and it has driven you bananas, I'll give you a little Cliff's Note version, um, which is <laughs> that this scripture, 1 Corinthians, speaks eloquently and deeply to a persecuted people about the fact that they can continue and persevere in the face of all that is in front of them, of all of the pain and all of the struggle. But what it talks about is an internal struggle, that God will be with us no matter how hard our internal struggle is, that God will not abandon us no matter how bad things get. But it is not, <laughs> it is not about the outer struggle being easy, which is where I think God will never give you anything more than you can handle often gets used. It doesn't get used as a declaration of God's passion for us and strength for us. It gets used as a way to say, we don't have to change those unfair external circumstances because you can handle them. <laughs> but what does it mean to handle something? Does handling something mean that we should be pushed to the limits of our endurance? <laughs> or does it mean that we step into the kind of kingdom that Jesus has already announced and demand that things be different, even as we're given the power and strength to survive whatever may come our way with one another. And if you want more on that, Juan Pablo and I are gonna do a little um, Facebook live streaming coffee chat about it Wednesday. But there's a reason that I'm not gonna get into into that, and that's because um, as I was preparing that sermon, I was also, as probably many of you are, watching the news. <laughs> And this week has been a really, really difficult week, I think, for everyone, for our country, and for all of the people in it. And I have seen just a lot of pain, 
on my social media feeds, in the people calling me, and the conversations I'm having at the coffee shop and in my life. Sexual violence and sexual assault has been all over the news, and so it's been all over our minds and our hearts. And I think it's hurting us and weighing us down. And in the midst of that conversation, there's a reason I'm wearing this t-shirt today, Bad Theology Kills, <laughs> I've seen a lot of bad theology and a lot of hard things and I think misguided things about both what it means to harm and what it means to forgive. So I wanted to take this time today, because it's on our minds, because it's on our hearts, because it's hurting us, to talk a little bit about where God finds us in the midst of violation of all kinds, but particularly sexual violation, which the church has been really bad at talking about openly, and what God has to say about forgiveness, and when it is demanded, and when it isn't, and what real forgiveness and atonement look like. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And, and the first thing is hard, <laughs> talking about um, the violation of our bodies and our souls and our minds, in part because we're not trained well by our world, it's something that um, the world tells us we should keep hidden away, that is shameful to talk about. The world has combined both good, loving, gift from God, joyful sexual experience and bad, harmful, painful, abusive sexual experience into one ball of stuff you should never say out loud and of stuff that we don't talk about, whether it's at school or in our families or at work. And it's made us all, I think, have a hard time sharing um, when things go wrong, when we get hurt. And it's made it hard for us to be there for each other in times when our friends and family experience sexual violation because we have so little experience talking about what that means and what is happening and what is happening to all of us. So then this week happens where it's every single headline and a huge percentage of us are remembering traumatic experiences and another percentage of us are understanding that those traumatic experiences exist and we don't know how to talk about it with one another. And the Bible is a little bit helpful and a little bit confusing <laughs> because while God, I think, is on our side and God has a lot to say and a lot to do about these kinds of violations, the Bible was written in a number of different times in history because most of our times in history and most of our cultures in history have been this way, where sexual violation and power over were the word of the day. They were so much a part of everyone's daily experience that they could barely be questioned, particularly of women. And so there's not a lot of stories of individuals in the Bible that help us to understand this experience. There are a few stories of sexual assault and violation in the Bible, and they go farther than you might think in understanding that this is not a victim's fault, that it can be a source of shame and pain, but they always, in the end, take the close-up off of the victim and towards the male relative that is closest to her and his honor and his shame and his violation and the wars that he's going to start over it. Um, they turn away from the pain, just like we do today because we don't know what to do and we think that it might be just too hard to watch. What would happen if we really faced it? So those stories are, are hard. They're, they're not a good map. <laughs> they're just not a good map 
for how to understand this part of the human experience or for how to respond to one another in it. Like with many things, we have to dig deeper into other parts of the biblical experience, into other parts of our spiritual experience, into who we know God to be and how we know God to have made us to understand more about this part of the human experience. We're not going to find one story that's the key to unlock it all. And here's where I find liberation and I find understanding and I find direction about the human experience of sexual assault and sexual violation. I find it in who God created us to be and how God created us, which is with integrity and freedom. I sometimes call myself a Genesis 1 Christian, <laughs> that if we could throw out everything else, right, if I could only pick one Bible passage that I had to live by for the rest of my life, I'd pick that one, because <laughs> I find the rest in it. I find the rest of understanding in it, and the Holy Spirit would give it all to me, because in Genesis 1, it declares to us, don't forget that there is no part of creation, there is never a part of what you experience or understand that I am not present in, and that I made you and I called you good, that I made you with a purpose. This is what God says to us, that God made us, and that means God made our bodies, not just our souls. Too often, faith teaches us to be suspicious of our bodies or to ignore them, to say that they get in the way of our spiritual experience, that our bodies are a temptation or a burden or a weight. But God would not have made our bodies and God would not have taken on a body in the form of Jesus Christ if our bodies weren't a form of liberative gift from the God who knows us and loves us and has an intention for our experience. Our bodies are beautiful and extraordinary. And one of the things about our bodies is that they are ours. They are ours. Your bodily integrity is whole and perfect and yours. No one ever has a right to touch your body, to make your body do anything, to force your body into circumstances which you have not freely chosen. This is the other great gift that God has given us. This is why human history is as messed up as it is, is that God didn't make us robots of doing God's will. God gave us the extraordinary gift of freedom. And one of the freedoms in which we know God, one of the freedoms in which we know the love of Jesus Christ is the freedom to choose what we do with our bodies. This freedom is a freedom that is whole, that is ours, that is intended by God, and when it is violated, it is a violation of the highest order of who God is and who God has made us to be. Our bodily integrity and our freedom are extraordinary gifts from God. And it is not a casual thing when they are taken away from us. It is not a minor thing. It is not a thing we can or should get over. That feeling we feel of ickiness and grossness and wrongness when our bodily integrity is questioned or violated is because that's how wrong it is. We're not convincing ourselves of something false. What God wants for us is freedom and integrity in our bodily experience. And too many of us are being slowly convinced by the world that we don't have a right to those things. This is part of why that, that bodily integrity and that freedom, that's part of why sex and affection are so beautiful and powerful. 
because those are the moments in our life when we choose to share bodies with other bodies. <laughs> to hug and to kiss and to touch and to experience sex is powerful precisely because of how much God values our freedom to choose. That when we choose to share, when we choose to enter into, when we choose to join, it is one of the most extraordinary experiences we can have because we are living into the fullness of our freedom and our bodily integrity when we choose to use it in the ways that bring us joy and closeness. And it's also why it's so harmful when it's taken away. And that violation of integrity doesn't just happen at the moment of a violent sexual assault. This is, I think, where I see a continuum of our experience. That when someone catcalls us on the street, it's not just rude. <laughs> it's an attempted reminder. Your body isn't yours all the time. It's what I want it to be. When someone sexually harasses us at work, exposes us to pornography or to their sexual desire or fantasy or experience that we have not freely chosen to be a part of, that we have not freely chosen to ask into our lives, even if no one touches us, it is an interference with that bodily integrity and freedom that God has given to us and have said are ours no matter what. This continuum of things, there's a difference between this and between that, but they're a part of the same evil, a part of the same sin, a part of the same lie, the same demonic lie, that our bodies are not ours, but belong to the powers and the principalities that choose to take advantage of them. And it's always a lie. It's always a lie. No matter how someone has interfered with or violated you, they cannot take away your bodily integrity and they cannot take away your freedom. We can be traumatized. We can have experiences that make us question those things, that make us question who we are, that make us question our worth and value and our belovedness. But always, 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 they are the responsibility of the violator and they do not change in any way who we are. This is a real damage, I think, that purity culture has done to us as Christians, um, is that I believe that God cares a lot about chastity, that there are times in our life when God calls us to use our freedom about our bodies to choose not to have sex. God doesn't care at all about virginity. <laughs> There's not a difference in your body between when it has had certain physical experiences and when it has not. <laughs> there just isn't. You're loved by God both times. You're adored both times. Your bodily integrity and freedom never cease. They never decrease. They're never taken away by anything you choose or do not choose to do. And this focus on the idea of bodily purity, which Jesus rejected over and over again, I have seen harm us. Because it makes us think that when we are violated, we are made bad or less or less with God when in fact, no one can ever take that away from us. It is one of the eternal gifts of how God has made us and how God has made our bodies. And that is a lie. It's a lie. This is, I, I used to, um, because of one of my volunteer jobs, spend a lot of time with sexual assault survivors um, in the midst of just having experienced sexual assault at emergency rooms. And I'll, I'll never forget the things that they told us to always say are, I believe you, this is not your fault, 
And those ones I had heard, those ones I sort of knew, right? Like in the back of my head, I knew that those things were important. But the last one was, you get to choose what happens next. A lot of us, I think, think that we help survivors of all kinds of trauma, not just sexual trauma, when we try and take care of things for them, right? Like, I'll find the food, I'll fix it, I'll get the doctor, I'll get the police, I'll make sure everything happens next just as it's supposed to happen because we feel out of control and we feel scared and we want control to come right back. But in fact, the most important thing is that when someone's fundamental right of choice has been violated, that they get it back as soon as possible that they get to choose as many things as they want to choose because it puts them back in touch with that quality of freedom that has been violated, that God has given them, and that they need. That survivors get to decide whether it's useful to have police involved, whether they want to talk to their teachers, whether they want to talk to their parents, is not just a victim-centered way of thinking about things. It's a way of honoring the quality that someone has attempted to take away of honoring the part of you that someone has attempted to say isn't real. I sometimes think um, that sexual assault is a kind of way of trying to kill someone without leaving a body behind because it's an attempt to say you have no choice and you aren't real. Your you isn't here because I won't respect it. Your you doesn't matter because I won't acknowledge it. But those attempts can never be successful because our yous belong to no one else but to us and to God. And so whatever way in which someone has tried to take your you away from you, whether the small or the large, that is their problem, that is their lie, that is their sin and their evil, and they have not touched the glorious wholeness that is who you are and who God made you to be and that no one can ever mar or take away no matter how much they tell you they have. It's a lie. This attempt to take us away from ourselves is an act of power and not an act of desire. It's an act of power and control and seeking to have power over and that's where it becomes not just an individual experience, but a communal part of the oppressions that we all engage in. Absolutely anyone can experience sexual assault and violation and has. I mean, you know men in your life, grown-up people, strong people with muscles, all the categories of people you think know have experienced this. But women do experience this more than men and non-binary people. Black women more than white women black trans women more than black cis women. Because it is an act of power and taking away, it happens to us on the individual level, but it also happens at the communal level that that kind of power, that kind of taking away, always happens along the lenses of power too. More to those who are more vulnerable. More to those who have less power. And that's where we get to this call for forgiveness that I've been hearing a lot these last couple of weeks, I'll be, these last couple of months, years, my whole life of being a Christian, I have been confused about the way that we talk about forgiveness. Because on the one hand, I believe, I have seen forgiveness across 
the most extraordinary kinds of harm be real and possible. And it is one of the qualities that I admire the most about who Jesus Christ is, and that one of the things that I need the most about who Jesus Christ is. I have not always been a good person. I have harmed others. I have done bad things. And the fact that forgiveness and mercy are ever-present qualities of God and Jesus Christ saves me every day. It is a part of God that I need. When I was in college, I... Um, became really, really obsessed with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. And I would watch these videos over and over and over again of people sharing the most profound kinds of trauma and harm, and yet managing to forgive one another across it and choose that they would move into a new future. Forgiveness is real and possible and powerful and glorious. But there's a reason it was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Truth. What has been being called forgiveness in the news these last few weeks, when we have been asked to forgive several of these violators and these perpetrators who have been openly acknowledging that they did or accused of various kinds of harm against people, what we have been being called to do They're calling it forgiveness, but it's not actually forgiveness. It's a cover-up. Because what they're asking for is that we simply forget that anything ever happened and move forward as things were in the beginning. And if there's one thing that Jesus never, ever, ever does, it's move forward with the status quo as if nothing has happened. (laughs) If there's one thing that Jesus Christ never, ever, ever does, it is say, The way that things have been, the way that things are, cool. Let's go with that. It's not who God is. Is Jesus capable of profound acts of forgiveness? Has God made profound acts of forgiveness? Yes. But those acts of forgiveness never reaffirm the existing power structure. They upend it. They never reaffirm the existing power structure. They upend it. This is the thing that Jesus says over and over and over again about the nature of the kingdom and the nature of who God is. That the last will be first and the first will be last. That your world will be turned upside down. That nothing will be how you expect. And that is the gift and the liberation of it. So if you find yourself being asked to commit an act of forgiveness that would simply reaffirm the harmful kind of power that existed between you before the act of violation, it's not forgiveness. It's a cover-up. True forgiveness upends the way that things have been and makes a new way going forward. Whether it's you individually, some people find it very helpful to forgive people who they can never interact with again for safety reasons. That's a thing that you can do, but that is a kind of forgiveness that changes your reality, that upends things going forward, that creates new opportunities for love and joy and safety and freedom and bodily integrity, not one that reaffirms old power structures that take all those things away from you. People talk a lot about um, Jesus turning the other cheek, right? That Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, But when someone slaps you in the cheek, you turn the other cheek too. When they force you to walk a mile, you walk one more. When they take your shirt, you give your coat. 
And the worst thing the church ever did was decide to adopt power and become the empire and become the pharaoh and become Herod. And it's made us very confused about all of the things that Jesus ever said. Because <laughs> Jesus wasn't the empire and Jesus wasn't Herod and Jesus wasn't the pharaoh. So if it sounds like pharaoh, it's not Jesus. I see in that not a kind of forgiveness and peacefulness that is a reaffirmation of power, but a kind that says, I am who I am even when society calls me powerless and you can't take it away from me. Imagine what it would be like to have a soldier or a centurion or someone with a weapon say, I force you to walk one mile. You will walk with me. You will carry my stuff right until the place where I'm going in one mile to that house. I have power over you. And then you walked one more mile after they had stopped. Does that sound like a gift to them? Or does that sound like you are saying to them, you do not have control over my body. I go where I go and I am stronger than you. I am stronger than you. You can tell me what to do, and I will do more simply to show you that you cannot command me and I am not yours, and whatever you can force me to do, my body remains mine. My actions remain mine. One of the most beautiful interpretations I've ever heard of that turn the other cheek is that um, Rome and and Israel, but mostly the Roman Empire, were this huge honor-shame society, like many societies that we have lived in, and that there was one cheek that you slapped someone on when they were your slave or your servant when they were below you. Everyone you met was either below you or above you. The whole world was a hierarchy of power. And there was one way to slap someone when they were beneath you, right? To show, I can do whatever I want to this person. And there was another way you slapped someone when you were basically sort of challenging them to a duel. When they were your equal and you were pissed at them and it was going to become a fight, that was the other cheek. And so in turning the other cheek, when someone has slapped him as their servant, as their slave, as their beneath, as their underpower, as their power over. Jesus is choosing nonviolence, but he is also choosing to say, I reject your understanding of the power between us. I turn the cheek to you of equality. <laughs> I turn the cheek to you of challenge. I turn the cheek to you of you do not have power over me. Even if, in this situation, you can make me do things that I do not want to do, your power over me is false and unreal, and God does not honor it. It is not true to the core of who I am. I turn the cheek to you of I am peaceful because I can choose to be, and I am more, and I am God's, and I am worthy, and I am beloved, and whatever slap you give me next will do nothing to take that away from me. That, that, if Jesus and God call us to any forgiveness, if Jesus and God call us to any mercy, is the kind of mercy. A mercy that is about not vengeance, right? I don't care about vengeance. Um, but that is not about making ourselves smaller and less. Not about continuing the ways of harm and pain that have been the order of the day. If your forgiveness makes someone more able to harm someone else who is vulnerable, it cannot possibly be what God is asking of us. It just can't. I think that Jesus is asking of us more. And I'll send an article to you guys. It was recently um, Rosh Hashanah and um, Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement in the Jewish faith. And a rabbi whose work I really love, Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, wrote an article about, um, for those of you who don't know, this is the time of the Jewish year when it's incumbent upon you to atone. <laughs> for your actions, to atone 
for what has happened and to try and move forward into a new way. And she writes about how um, Jewish scholars have always talked about what does atonement really look like and what does forgiveness really look like? Uh, and what does, and, and Maimonides writes, public apology, amends that the victim has chosen, right? So whatever they think is best, whether it's money or therapy or a talk or, you know, whatever they want. But the last and final step, and this is something that AA is really good about. If any of you are in recovery groups, recovery is really good about that. The last and final step of any true atonement is that it creates the conditions to never have that kind of harm happen again. That you take steps so that if you were ever in the position to harm the way that you harmed someone, you wouldn't do it. And we aren't sure if atonement and forgiveness have really happened until that part happens, where the harm ceases. I am not invested in continued harm for anyone, but I am invested in building a world where there is no more sexual violation and sexual assault, because that is the world that I believe God announced when God came to us. I believe that is the kingdom. I believe that is how we are intended to be together. A world where all of us have bodily integrity, freedom, joy, choice, and love. So in the choices to come, whether it's about who we are, what resources we seek, how we are to each other, how we love each other, whether we forgive, whether we don't, whether we ask for forgiveness, if any of us have been perpetrators, violators, harmers of others in ways small and large, the question should be, does this bring us closer to Jesus' world where there is no more harm, no more pain, no more violation, or does it bring us farther away? That will be how we figure out where God wants us to be and what God wants us to do and what God is calling us towards. Truth is uncomfortable. Truth is scary. It has been hard to watch one another's tender hurts, but Jesus could do it. There is a reason, I think, that in the resurrection, Jesus came back with a body that was not dead but that still had the wounds on his hands. It's because he wasn't afraid of them. Jesus' wounds were not a mark of shame. Though someone had harmed him and violated him, it meant nothing about who he was. It meant something about what the world was. And so he showed them to us to allow us to be a different kind of world that I think we are still working towards, where being harmed and being powerless and being vulnerable is no source of shame, and nothing should happen to us except that all the powers of the world be upended. Amen? Amen. We're about to go into communion. Juan Pablo is going to come back out and lead us in that. I thank you for sharing this time with me. Um, I know it's challenging, but I think it's important <laughs> that we have different language and different ways of understanding to go out into the world with to shape it into who Jesus wants us to be.